When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello. How's everyone holding up? That's the age-old question these days, isn't it? This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby! And I'm your host, Liv, on week three of seeing almost no other humans except for, like, two times to the grocery store. It's been fun. I've been thinking lately how interesting it'll be to listen to podcasts from this time in the future. Like, how the podcasters address this completely fucked up thing we're living through, how much crazier they sound than from podcasts before isolation... 
I know I do. Anyway, it's a weird ass time. For today's episode, though, we are diving back into, yes, the story of Aeneas. We'll see how long we last here before we dip back out into something a little funnier. But for now, well, this episode was partially written already. And even though I have all the time in the world, it turns out it's really tricky to stay motivated and creative and funny when you're alone with your cat 24-7. Also, I've just recorded another crossover episode with the Ladies of Ancient History Fangirl, where we discuss a certain character from the Aeneid. So now is as good a time as any to return to it. You can prepare yourselves for that episode soon once we do one more episode of the Aeneid and then that'll come out and oh, did we have fun. I talked with those two ladies yesterday for, I think we neared seven hours. It was insane. The podcast will only be max an hour. Don't worry. But we talked and drank beer for seven hours. So it's been fun. <laughs> if you haven't already subscribed to their show and listened to the episode I recorded them with them uh, about Dionysus, which was also very fun and full of beer, what are you even doing? The moment this episode is done, head over and listen to that one. It's just such It was just such a joy to record. Anyway, there's only so much non-Aeneid talking I can do, and clearly I'm already falling all over my words. Ah, isolation. Where did we last leave our friend Aeneas, that guy who's telling us the Trojan War story all over again? Well, he was continuing, and I'm only telling you the relevant stuff, I promise. His version is obviously very different and from the other side of the war, and that alone, though, is fascinating. The emphasis Rome put on what the Trojans went through as a result of the war with the Greeks, trying to really put themselves in the place of the Trojans, is just a fascinating perspective compared to the Iliad. Oh, how Augustus wanted to be a real and true descendant of Aeneas. Oh, how Augustus wanted to be a real and true god, so that the empire he'd just founded would worship him as such. And in order to really show off just how important Augustus was, and just how important and determined by the gods the very existence of the Roman Empire was, Virgil had to do a damn fine job of playing up the victimhood of Aeneas and all that he went through to get to the founding of what would become Rome. It's a little like another country's founding story, and their founding... you know... There isn't another country that has a founding mythos as important to their national identity as Rome other than a certain country to the south of me. Oppressed by the British? Oh, so oppressed. They fought a war. Their founding fathers were nearly deified with how they're seen and spoken of, even today. Oh, that constitution. I want to say I wrote all that before the coronavirus, but I thought I might as well keep it in anyway. But just a little context. Anyway, as a country that doesn't have much of that, I do find it fascinating how much the story of the Revolutionary War and the Founding Fathers corresponds with that of Augustine Rome. But I did not set out to make this episode political and again, wrote it before coronavirus. I'm making no judgments here, people, just pointing out some similarities. Anyway, where was I? Oh, right. Aeneas and... Troy. This is episode 76. Aeneas had a wife in Troy. Ghost Creusa's got shit to say. The Aeneid part four. Aeneas has just finished telling the room full of Carthaginians over their feast about the Trojan horse and just how fooled they were, how horribly old Laocoon died inspiring one of my favorite pieces of art in the Vatican Museums, Google it. The Trojans had brought the horse into their city, thinking they were doing all they could to save themselves, to keep the gods happy. And in thinking they'd done absolutely everything right, they celebrated. 
the Trojans decorated the city with all the trappings of a place that had just won a ten-year war. Aeneas continues his story to the Carthaginians, telling them how, late that night, the Greeks sailed back from their hiding spot, once again landing on the shores near Troy, and how Sinon, the spy, snuck out and freed the Greeks from inside the horse as they poured out into the city that was just so fast asleep. I fell asleep, Aeneas continues, I was comfortably asleep when Hector woke me, tears flowing from his eyes, his poor body ripped to shreds, bloody and broken, from Achilles dragging him behind his chariot. There's a lot of ghosts in this episode. This Hector of my dream is so different from the one I knew in life, he laments. So different from the Hector I remember, driving into battle high on his chariot, gleaming in the sunlight as it hit Achilles' own armor. Aeneas calls out to Hector, asking him questions of where he's been and what he's seen, but Hector doesn't answer. He has more important things to tell Aeneas. Run, he tells him. Run from here as fast as you can. You must escape from the burning city. The Greeks have Troy. It's too late. There's nothing left here. If anyone could have saved Troy, it was me, Hector says. Take Troy's household gods with you, he says. Bring them with you until you can rebuild after the journey across the sea. It's your destiny to build a city that will have the Trojan gods. Hector tells me this, Aeneas tells the Carthaginians, and then brings forth Vesta, goddess of the hearth, and her ever-burning fire. Now Aeneas is awake and fully understanding what is going on around him, just how bad it is there in Troy. His father's home where he is is tucked away in the trees, but he can still hear the screaming, the clang of swords. He pulls himself from bed, shaking off sleep, and makes his way to the roof of the house. He hears it all from there, the sounds of the Greeks that have breached the walls of Troy, setting it on fire. He realizes then what's happened, that they were tricked, that they have been beaten. His neighbors' homes are on fire. He can see them now. He can smell the smoke and hear the screams. Finally, frantically, he grabs all he can, any weapons he has with him. He wants to find his comrades to make his way to the citadel. Quote, My heart's on fire with fury and the wanting to die with glory. But then, suddenly, at his own door is the son of a priest of the Shrine of Apollo on the citadel. He's carrying all the sacred things he could hold, along with his own grandchild holding the child by the hand. Where should we go? Aeneas calls out to this man, frantically. What should we do? Troy has fallen, the man tells Aeneas. Its last day has come. This is the end of us. Ilium and all its glory is gone. Finished. He tells him that the Greeks are pouring from the horse that the Trojans so foolishly let into their walls, that Troy is burning and the Greeks have overtaken them. Aeneas brings together as many men as he can find to fend off the Greeks. One man, he notes, came from far away to marry Cassandra, to become a son-in-law to Priam, a prince of Troy himself. We're told that Cassandra tried to warn him, just like she's always tried to warn everyone— but that then she wasn't believed. Cassandra, what an example of just how long people haven't been believing women and where that gets them. Anyway, great news that Harvey Weinstein has COVID-19, hey? 
The Trojans, led by Aeneas, do what they can to stop the Greeks, but there's just so many of them. They see a daughter of Priam ripped from Minerva's temple. They look on in horror. One of them tries to stop it, goes straight at the Greeks as they drag the woman from the temple. Aeneas and the others follow, but that man dies first. Meanwhile, there's one man that Aeneas is seeing more and more, doing more and more horrific things in this battle for Troy. In the Aeneid, he's called Pyrrhus. In the Iliad, he's called Neoptolemus. He is the son of Achilles, and he's a fucking maniac. Pyrrhus is raging through Troy, stabbing wildly, almost at random, anything and anyone he comes into contact with. He kills one of Priam's sons brutally in front of his eyes and drags the king of Troy through his son's own blood to where he can watch and see his city burning before killing him too. Before he dies, Priam tells Pyrrhus how unlike his own father he is. Not even Achilles would behave this way, would be so horrific and so brutal even at war. But Pyrrhus is truly a monster. All this Aeneas watches, worrying about those he hasn't seen yet who may or may not have survived all this bloodshed. From Aeneas, we get a very different look at the end of the Trojan War. It's very much the Greeks as monsters, and bloodthirsty men come to a city far from their homes just to kill as many as possible. Certainly, that's exactly what the Greeks were, objectively, but Homer wants you to believe they were righteous. Virgil sees it quite differently. The Trojans are the heroes in this story. Finally, as he surveys what's left of his city, tries to stop whatever Greeks he can, save whatever Trojans he can, Aeneas comes upon Helen herself. Through a doorway he can see her, and oh does his imagination run wild. As in all instances during this endless war, he blames Helen, seeing in her everything that's happened to his people, as though every moment of this is singularly her fault. He considers killing her, taking his revenge so that she doesn't go back to Greece as a queen while Troy burns, as if she would have a good life when she got back to Sparta. But in the moment where he's most unsure whether he'll kill her right now or spare her life, Venus, Aeneas's mother, comes to him and stays his hand. This isn't what you should be concerning yourself with, she tells him. Where is your family? Do you know if they still live? Go to them. Let her fate be decided by others. Aeneas takes his mother's direction, rushing home to find his family, his father, his wife Creusa, because I guess he had a wife, and their son. Quick hiccup. So I switched translations, which I'll explain at the end. And it starts now. And in this one, the kid is called Ulyss, whereas the previous version had him named Ascanius. You gotta love ancient sources. He's kind of called both. I think I'll start calling him Ulyss because this is the translation I'm going to continue with. And, well, that's where the propaganda comes in. Augustus claims that his uncle, the guy who made him emperor, Julius Caesar, whose name is really Julius because Latin didn't have J's, was descended from this kid and therefore was a descendant of Aeneas and therefore was divinely ordained to lead Rome. It's a whole thing. The point is... Aeneas returns home, as Troy burns around him, to find his father and Kizzies, his wife Creusa, and their son Ulyss, and they plan their escape. And Kizzies is old and perhaps disabled in some way, as Aeneas plans to carry his father on his shoulders while his wife and child walk behind him. They'll sneak out of the city, Aeneas knows that Troy can't be saved at this point, so they must simply try to save themselves, to save some Trojans if they can't save Troy. 
At one point, Anchises calls up to Jupiter, asking for a sign of what they should do. And a comet streaks across the sky, landing beyond Mount Ida in the distance. If anything's a sign from the god of the sky, I'd say it's a flaming rock. For as long as they can, they sneak through the city, for a while managing to avoid any conflict with the Greeks. But eventually Anchises calls out that the Greeks are approaching, that they have to run. Which is when Aeneas tells his rapt audience, quote, And there my wife Creusa, no, was stolen, by fate, or strayed, or else collapsed, exhausted. Who knows? We never saw her anymore. That is how he talks about his wife being killed. Maybe? That is one of the most heartless tellings of a suspected death, or whatever the hell happened to her, that I've ever heard. Did she get taken? Did she fall? Who knows? Who cares? She's not here now, Dido, oh hot queen of Carthage. Wink, wink. Anyway, ugh, this guy. He continues on, and fine. Does this section continue with him saying that he was wildly, horribly distraught? That he went back to Troy by himself, searching for her, looking everywhere he could think of? Yes. So I jumped the gun on my hatred of him. But it came across so shitty in that section that I'm keeping my righteous indignation for all of your amusement. So Aeneas wanders through what's left of Troy, frantically searching for his wife, he sees it burning, that there's so little of it left now, after what the Greeks have done. He sees Ulysses standing guard at a mound of treasure, treasure that the Greeks have stolen from the Trojans they've just slaughtered in the night. And while he searches, Creusa's spirit comes to him. She tells him that it wasn't in Jupiter's plan to let her escape Troy with her husband. No, that he was bound to travel far across the sea and end up in Libya, where he'll be met with riches and a royal wife. Do we believe that happened, or that Aeneas decided Dido was hot and so added that little tidbit in his story? Like, yeah, so technically I did have a wife, but she's gone now, and isn't that lucky? She basically told me it was okay for me to marry again. Specifically, if it was to marry a rich, royal woman. What a coincidence! So Aeneas is still shitty, is all I'm saying. By the time Aeneas leaves the city, returning to his father and his son, there's nothing left. The Greeks control every entrance, every exit, and the entire place is on fire. It's over, he knows. So he travels with what's left of his family toward the mountains. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, 
we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Having escaped the burning walls of Troy, Aeneas, his father, and his son have to decide what to do next. It's interesting the way Virgil tells of his hero versus Homer. Homer revered his character, certainly, but Virgil is quite obviously working to make Aeneas's plight and Aeneas himself into the story worthy of how the Romans saw themselves, or how Augustus wanted them to see themselves. Aeneas is a martyr. Where to go? Well, Aeneas puts together what he can of a fleet, it's not clear how, but it seems he meets up with men and ships, and they decide to sail off to Thrace, where we're told the people are linked to the Trojans through some history. They land there, and Aeneas very humbly tries to found a city that, in this translation, he'll call Aeneas's town. Very Alexandrian of him. He tells his audience that he tried to perform the necessary sacrifices to appease the gods, to allow him to found this Aeneas's town, but that when he went to rip a certain plant from the ground, the roots pulled up blood and gore. It's quite the image. He tries to pull another plant, but the same thing happens. Blood oozes from the ground. It's a horrible sight, and suddenly... Aeneas hears a voice in his head, a man named Polydorus, calling to him to stop, not to pull at corpses buried there beneath the ground. It seems that years ago, Priam had sent Polydorus to Thrace to ask them for help in their war with the Greeks. He knew they needed more men. But the Thracian king had betrayed Priam and sided with Agamemnon. He'd killed Polydorus so he could steal the gold that Polydorus brought as a gift for the king's help. 
this is enough to show Aeneas and the other Trojans that they have no business landing there or trying to found anything there. It's a cursed place. They plan to leave, but first they bury Polydorus correctly, perform whatever rites are needed so that the poor man can move on. The moment that's done, they sail off, leaving the cursed land of Thrace behind them. Next, Aeneas tells his audience in Carthage that they land on the island of Delos. Delos is where Apollo and Artemis were born. Back then, it floated free in the sea, which is why their mother, Leto, was able to have her children there. Of course, their father is Zeus, the fucker, and Hera had cursed Leto. She couldn't give birth anywhere on earth. On Delos, Aeneas calls upon Apollo for guidance. Where should they go? Where can they seek refuge from the Greeks? Apollo's voice calls to them, You must go to where your race was born, a fertile and welcoming land. From there, the voice says, Aeneas's sons will rule all the countries of the world for generations upon generations. There's that propaganda sneaking back in. The sun never sets on the Roman Empire. Though Apollo seems to have made things pretty clear, this is still a prophecy and we know how those go. So where exactly is their homeland? The Trojans wonder. That much wasn't clear. Anchises, Aeneas' father, determines that the land they seek must be Crete, the island to the south of them. He says so because of Crete's Mount Ida, which he says is where their race arose. I assume connecting it to the Mount Ida and Troy, because there are two. I had to Google it once. It was very confusing. Anchises is so certain that they must sail for Crete and do it now that they should head to Knossos the very moment they can. They sacrifice animals to get them there and quickly. Now, one might wonder aloud, isn't Crete, well, full of Greeks? But it seems they've got that figured. There's a rumor that Indomenius, who once ruled Crete, is banished and that the island lays empty without enemies of any kind. This seems risky to me, but they go for it. The Trojans live for a while on Crete, and all seems well. They make homes there, they farm, the whole lot. But then, quite suddenly, a plague rains down upon them out of nowhere. We know about that, eh guys? Yes, a plague sickens all the Trojans where they live on Crete. The fields dry up, they aren't able to make any food at all. And so Anchises calls for them to return to Delos once more and ask Apollo what on earth they should do next. Can they end the plague or must they move on from Crete? But that very night, before they could even leave Crete for Delos, the sacred Trojan gods come to see Aeneas in his sleep. These are not specific gods we hear of, just the Trojan household gods, the gods he brought with him while Troy burned. They tell Aeneas that they were not meant to make their home on Crete, that their true homeland lies elsewhere. In a place the Greeks call Hesperia, he's told, the descendants of that land take their name from a king, Italus. That is the true Trojan home, the household gods explained to Aeneas, where Dardanus was born and where Father Iasus, the founder of Troy. It's decided, you must sail to Italy. Your home is not on Crete. Go as soon as you can, take your father, and tell him of this true Trojan home. Jupiter says you cannot stay on Crete. When Aeneas tells his father what he's learned, well, then it all seems so obvious to Anchises. I should have known, he says. Cassandra always told us that the Trojans were meant to have the West, that they were meant to have Italy. 
Fucking Cassandra, you guys. The Aeneid really does like to show how right she was all the time and how they were idiots for not believing her. They harp on how they really fucked up there. It's pretty satisfying. And at the same time, like, holy shit. Just, I mean, I know it was a curse, but like you could have believed the woman. She knew everything. So it seems Cassandra knew all along that they should head for Italy, but she wasn't believed. Once more, the Trojans set sail again, this time bound for Italy. But they're caught in a storm, for this is the Mediterranean, the same sea sailed by Odysseus, and you remember how that went. They're caught in a storm and thrown off course, landing on an island where the Harpies live. Oh, Harpies are fucking cool, you guys. I mean, I wouldn't want to run into them, so Aeneas and the other Trojans aren't psyched about it, but I am, because I get to talk about Harpies. They land on their island, and they're ready. Ready for these monsters with the faces of women, but with clawed hands and revolting bodies dripping of who-knows-what and big, scary wings. They're like big, disgusting birds that are also women, but all the best of the monsters are women. Definitely says something about the culture's patriarchy that they're always women, but I choose to take it as something kind of righteous rather than wildly insulting. When they land on the island, they see a herd of cows and goats and no one watching over them. Of course, this is incredibly exciting, and perhaps they don't know there are harpies yet? It seems unclear. But either way, they have quite the feast on these animals they've found. A feast that's quite satisfying and enjoyable until... The harpies swoop in on their group, their wings flapping, their voices screeching horribly. Everything they touch is left with a horrible filth, and their smell is horrifying. The men try to fight off the harpies to kill them, but they're unable to pierce them. And of course, the ladies have wings. And before long, they hear a voice calling to them from above. Kaleno, who I believe is a fury, calls down from above. The fuck do you think you're doing? She doesn't say, but that's the point she's making. Basically, you're here eating our animals and trying to kill the innocent harpies who simply live here. And now, here's your curse. Apollo says that, sure, you'll land in Italy, but now you won't be able to found your promised city because of this crime against us. You will be hungry, starving until you'll want to eat your tables. This is not what they wanted to hear. So Aeneas and the Trojans get the fuck out of there, sailing once more toward Italy. They pass more islands, including Ithaca, where they curse Ulysses from their ship. A note I had to include because I just love that my main man gets his own special curse as they pass by. But they continue on once they've cursed old Ulysses. There's another stop, but it seems kind of pointless, so I'm going to skip over it to their next, more important stop in a city called Bithrotum where they hear a most incredible rumor. A Trojan, a son of Priam at that, named Hellenus, rules that land, where he succeeded Achilles' son Pyrrhus, succeeding the man even in his marriage to Andromache. Aeneas is about to run into some old friends that he surely thought had died in Troy. Oh, the emotions. Oh, nerds, thank you for listening. So a quick note on the sources for this one. Uh, I got my hands on Sarah Rudin's translation of the Aeneid. For the first little bit of this episode and the previous ones, I'd been using the David Ferry translation, but I've moved on to Sarah Rudin because, one, it's good. 
Two, she translated the golden ass, and that translation is awesome. And three, she's a woman, and I support women. That's that, really. Like I said last week, if you're finding yourself with loads of time during this insane world, consider using your time to write me a five-star review. Not nearly as many people are listening to podcasts right now without the commute, so any kind of extra support is much appreciated. Thank you all. You're the best. Thank you to all our essential workers out there, people in grocery stores and delivery people, and of course, everyone in hospitals. You're amazing. We'd be fucked without you. To everyone else, stay home if you can. It's the only way we're getting out of this thing, and at least we're all doing it together. Wash your hands. I'm Liv, and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) 
What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.